When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. During the Second World War, the German army used the ancient, towering Kolditz Castle near Leipzig to hold its most defiant prisoners. Nestled deep within the German heartland, it became almost impossible to escape. And once you made it out of the castle walls, if you got that far, you had to travel hundreds of miles across Germany to try and get to safety. But it wasn't totally impossible. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast, and in this episode, I'm joined by best-selling author Ben McIntyre. Now, you'll know Ben from his books on Operation Mincemeat, Agent Zigzag, and Rogue Heroes, which has just been turned into a new hit BBC series. And I can only expect Ben's new book will have the same success, as the characters he reveals became legends due to their daring escapes. So here is Ben McIntyre on Escaping from Colditz. Enjoy. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Well, it's great to have you on, and congratulations on the new book about a topic that has fascinated me, and I'm sure all of our listeners, since we were very young, and that is Colditz, one of history's most notorious prisons. Now, off the back of Operation Mincemeat, your latest smash hit book, what made you want to focus on Colditz? I guess Colditz, a little like Mincemeat, is one of those stories that we think we know. I've lost count of the number of people who said to me of, of Operation Mincemeat, oh, I know about that. That's the man who never was. Well, the truth is, if you only ever knew Mincemeat through the man who never was, you knew about one-tenth of it. And the same is probably true of Colditz. We have a very clear, mythologized idea of what Colditz was about. And it's actually part of our sort of national mythology, really. I mean, the very word Colditz has been absorbed into the language. And it sort of almost always tells the same story, the traditional story. And that's the story of a sort of white mustachioed British officer with a stiff upper lip, tunneling his way out of a Gothic castle and defying the Germans. And of course, that is a central part of the story. Like all, It's not a bad story, Ben. It's a great story. <laughs> and, and it is partly true. Escaping was absolutely central to the Colditz story. But actually, beneath that surface, there's a whole set of other stories about Colditz that paint a very different sort of picture in a way, a much more humane, a much more human, a much more complicated and multicoloured picture than the black and white story that you and I 
inherited from the BBC TV series in the 70s and the board game in the, even earlier. And these are things embedded in our culture. But as with all history, they bear revisiting. And sometimes the revisiting produces very unexpected results. All right, then, Ben. Well, take us back. What don't we know about Colditz? Well, let me start with what we in a way, what we do know, because, you know, Kolditz was a high security officer's prison. It was the only one in Germany. It was intended to house, the, it was run by the German army, crucially, not by the SS. This was not a death camp. This was not a concentration camp. This was an officer's prison camp. And it was for allied officers, not just British, but Polish, French, Dutch, you know, really kind of everybody who'd been on the allied side, the officers who tried to escape from somewhere else. And the logic on the German side was that if you lock up all the bad people in one place, the Deutsch Feindlich, the German unfriendly, then they'll be much easier to control. This proved to be a mistake, because if you lock up all the bad boys, as they call them, they egg each other on and you've got a kind of escape academy. So what that's effectively what happened. So that's the sort of central story. That's a great idea, Ben, an escape academy. They all come together with their experiences from different prisons about how to get round the guards, their different initiatives, and they're basically pooling their talents all together within this well, ancient Gothic them. castle. Well, they're pooling them, but they're also in competition with each other because ah. the Dutch are in competition with the French and the French are in competition with the British and the British are in competition with the Poles. So... You know, not only do you do you have them sort of egging each other on within national groups, they're in a kind of rivalry with other national groups. So it's sort of you create a kind of pressure cooker, really. But beneath that overall story, there are so many other tales that really sort of, in a way, some of them run bang smack up against our mythology. So in a way, the real story of Colditz is about class. It's about race. It's about sex. It's about mental illness. The sort of, as it were, the more human elements. I mean, lots of people in Colditz were tough, resilient, you know, invulnerable people who just really did regard escaping as being a sort of game and dedicated them to it. But they were always in a minority. In fact, most of the people in Colditz were human beings like the rest of us, and they, they responded in a variety of ways. So, you know, it's, it's not just this sort of two-dimensional story. That's what I've tried to do here. Without destroying, you know, our most cherished myths, it's time to take a look at them a bit more closely and see whether they really hold up to reality. So, I mean, let me just take one of those elements for you. Class. This was an officer's camp. So most of the prisoners in it, particularly from the British side, were upper middle class white men who had been to public school. And many of them had recently emerged from public school. And one of the odd things about Colditz was that it turned into or was created as a kind of artificial microcosm of the world outside. So for lots of these people, they kind of recreated the world of the public school inside the prison. And if it has that kind of boy's own paper tang to it, that's because that's the world they emerged from. But what I had not realized until I began researching Colditz is that although it was an officer's camp, those officers had servants to look after them. Under the Geneva Convention of 1929, captured officers had the right, not just the opportunity, but the right to be served. And those servants were also prisoners of war. They were also British. They just happened to be privates or NCOs, very rarely, but they were known as orderlies. They were ordinary British soldiers. They were captives, and they were not allowed to escape. Moreover, their days were spent serving both the British officers and the German officers. They had to obey without question 
both the Germans and their senior officers. What do you mean by they're not allowed to escape then? They were not um, permitted the... to escape. The officers were the ones who were allowed to escape because an officer was considered far more valuable. And therefore, they were obviously first in line because from the point of view of the British Army, they were the valuable people. It wasn't, wasn't the, the POWs. There was another very good practical reason why the ordinaries, the orderlies, the other ranks, as they were known, were not allowed to escape because it was, would have been suicidal. Again, under the Geneva Convention, a captured officer, the, probably the worst that would happen to them, they, they'd be returned to solitary in Kolditz. If an ordinary prisoner were found in disguise behind the lines in Germany, he was much more likely to be executed on the spot. Um, and they knew it. And the Germans knew it too. So there was both a practical reason and a cultural reason why no orderly, no other rank prisoner ever tried to escape from Kolditz. And that's why they had to spend the rest of the war there serving their allied officers and, and German officers. I mean, no good time at that level. And like you say, due to those class dynamics, it's an element that we've completely erased from the Kolditz story. Well, we have. I mean, it, again, it has to go into perspective. Um, they could be moved around from camp to camp at the whim of the German authorities. Moreover, for some of them, Kolditz was considered quite a cushy billet because actually it certainly beat having to work in the copper mines or because, again, under the Geneva Convention, officers could not be made to work, whereas ordinary prisoners could and were. So, in fact, the orderlies in Kolditz, many of them had kind of volunteered for the work in Kolditz because then they didn't have to slave for the German Reich. So it's a, it's a nuanced and complicated story. Very few of the orderlies remained at Kolditz throughout. Very few of them. In fact, none of them wrote their memoirs after the war. These were people who had often had very little education. They weren't encouraged to write their stories. But their stories have emerged, partly because the Imperial War Museum began collecting oral histories from all these people in the 1980s. And by that point, of course, the world of deference and master-servant had changed. And a lot of these orderlies felt that they could, they were men in their 70s, 80s by this point, felt they could now tell their stories. And they're pretty shocking, some of them. I mean, let me just give you one illustration. Um, and I don't want to make the place sound like it was a kind of crucible of class war, although actually the orderlies did go on strike at one point and refused to work for the officers anymore. They were swiftly brought into line. But Douglas Bader, whom many of your listeners will know of, a great hero of the Second World War, the great fighter pilot, lost both his legs in an accident before the war. A man of extraordinary courage, but also in many ways a complete monster. I mean, Bader was a pretty, pretty grim individual in lots of ways. And he had a Batman in cold, it's called Alex Ross, whose job was to make him breakfast every day and carry him up and down stairs for his bath. Not, not easy, up, you know, three flights of winding staircase. Uh, Bader never thanked him, never never gave him any of the sort of extra food that he was collecting. He just treated him like a third-class citizen. So oddly, towards the end of the war, there was a sort of repatriation scheme where orderlies and ordinary soldiers could be swapped for captured Germans. Not officers, again, they were considered too valuable, but sort of ordinary soldiers. And Ross was selected for this, and he went to see Douglas Bader and said, I've got great news, Wing Commander, I'm going home. Uh, this was two years before the end of the war. And Douglas Bader said, no, you're not. He said, you're my lackey. And you've been brought here as my lackey. And that's what you're going to stay, Ross. And you won't get out of here before I do. And sure enough, Ross spent another two and a quarter years in Colditz as a result. Now, that's an extreme example. Most officers were extremely kind and thought the world of their servants. But 
you know, there were servants. There was a master and servant class inside Colditz. There was even in the upper class a Bullingdon club, which some of your listeners will have heard of, the famous dining club, the Etonian dining club. Well, there was a version of that in Colditz. So there was an elite within the elite. Wow. So I think you can safely say that class was a, a quite disturbing dominant dynamic within the camp to the point where they were even having a version of the most elite club that you can have out of Oxbridge, uh, which is the Bullingdon Club. And like you say, that's the one where Boris and David Cameron and all the rest club together to, to, to start to plan to, to run the leadership of, of Great Britain. And I guess in this Bullingdon Club, they probably clubbed together to plan to, to try and escape from Colditz. Well, they did a bit. Although, actually, to be honest, I mean, the sort of the real aristocrats were part of yet another club called the Prominenti, which was actually wasn't a, a club club. It was, it was a group of people that the Nazis considered to be of particular value. They were relatives of the royalty. They were Churchill's nephew. They were other people who were just basically held as hostages. And they never thought of escaping because they were under such tight security that they were never going to be allowed out without a guard standing right next to them. So you've got these different grades. And and in a way, yes, class was dominant. But then we have to remember, this was a period of history when class was very dominant, you know, not just the army, but all institutions in British life were intensely hierarchical. And it would have been extraordinary if Colditz hadn't been like that. Absolutely. And most especially within the army, we can say that class was a pretty important thing at that point. But so was race. Now, you mentioned race. What do you mean by racial aspects within Colditz? Is this more about the suppression of some of the more fascinating histories? Like, um, I don't know, I was looking through some of the the characters you go through. And and I say characters not to trivialise them like it's fiction, but because they were larger than life. People like the Indian doctor, Mazumdar. Is this what you mean by race, that their stories have been oppressed? Yes. I mean, the story of Birendranath Mazumdar is extraordinary, and I'd be delighted to tell it to your listeners. But even before that, I mean, here's another example of race. At one point, the French officers in Colditz, quite early on, declared that they did not want to be billeted alongside Jewish French officers. They said, these people are Jews. They need to be kept separately from us. And sure enough, the commandant, seeing a propaganda opportunity, took all the French Jews, the French Jewish officers, and put them in the attic, which immediately became called the ghetto. So that gives you an idea of, you know, race was also a terribly emotive subject, a terribly emotive thing at the time. Many of these French officers were supporters of Vichy, the collaborationist government, supported, you know, working hand in glove with the Nazis. Um, So they were anti-Semites. They were old-fashioned racists. Now, the British contingent was enraged by this movement because anti-Semitism was much less prevalent, although certainly not non-existent. I mean, it was around in the the upper British upper class, but it was nothing like as, as sort of extreme as it was in France. So that's one example. But Britain had its own problems. I mean, there was one non-white officer in Colditz, and his name was Birendranath Mazumdar, and he was a highly educated doctor from North India. He was a surgeon. He was an Indian nationalist. He was opposed to British rule in in India. But when war broke out, he volunteered for the Royal Army Medical Corps. He was captured at Dunkirk and shipped to Colditz, where he suffered the most egregious racism. I mean, he was treated as absolutely as a third class citizen. He was made to cook curries. He was nicknamed Jumbo. He was teased. He was mocked. But perhaps most importantly, when he said, I want to escape from this place, they said, no. The senior officers said, you're not getting out of here, Jumbo, because you're the wrong colour. And if they spot you, they'll pick you up immediately with your brown skin. You're not going anywhere. 
And Mazumdar had a terrible time, not least because the Germans saw him as a propaganda tool and tried to recruit him to broadcast to India to encourage Indians to rise up against the British Raj, effectively a sort of Indian Lord Haw-Haw. And Mazumdar wrote this extraordinary moving poetry where he describes the sort of the struggle of the soul that he had to try and decide what to do about this offer because the Germans were offering him liberty and money and comfort and the Brits were offering him racism and prejudice and yet he'd given his oath to the British and in the end he decided to stick with the British army. He he said, I'll go back to Colditz. He went back and they treated him as a spy from that moment. They decided that he must therefore have already thrown in his lot with the Germans. So he went on hunger strike and said that, you know, there was very little food in Colditz anyway, but he said, I'm going to starve myself to death unless you put me in an all-Indian prison. And there were two, believe it or not, in France. I didn't know that. That's a whole part of the history that we didn't know either. There were prisons dedicated to certain prisoners from certain countries. To certain races. And as part of the kind of racial hierarchy that the German Reich espoused, yes, Indians were to be held separately from white prisoners. And many of them were, not all of them, obviously, Otherwise, Mazumda would have been there. But eventually they agreed to move him to to one in France. And astonishingly, he managed to escape. He escaped from that camp. He then walked 700 miles on foot across occupied France and into Switzerland. It's an astonishing story. And it's never been told, really, because Mazumda never told his story to anybody until a couple of years before his death, when he recorded some tapes. Even his wife didn't know what had happened to him. And those tapes are, I mean, they're really poignant because here is a man 40, 50 years after the events describing what it felt like. And even for the time, the way he was treated was pretty appalling. You know, even by the standards of race relations from that period, Mazumdar was was really ill-treated by the British government. So, you know, I hope someone picks up his story because it would make the most amazing film, I think. And it, again, it, it slightly, it doesn't radically, but it slightly changes the lens through which we see these kinds of stories. And I think that's, if we can do that, that's a real service to history. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway, Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Where did you find these tapes? How did you get access to them? Well... Uh, his wife actually arranged for me to listen to them. They're now lodged in the Imperial War Museum. That's but what we like to hear, so we can all go and listen to them when we want to. Go and listen to them. They're remarkable. I mean, I could not have written this book without that treasure trove of recorded material at the Imperial War Museum. There are, and I'm not exaggerating, there are something like 4,000 hours of recordings of Kolditz, former Kolditz prisoners. And what makes it so interesting is that in many cases, like Mazumdar, like Alec Ross, the orderly I was telling you about, These are people who didn't feel able to tell their stories in the immediate aftermath of war. It wasn't the moment to come in with a less rosy, a less kind of simplistic view of what had happened. But come the 80s and 90s, they were prepared to talk much more freely. And boy, they do. I can only rave about that archive. I mean, I did a lot of work on bomb disposal during the Second World War. And if it wasn't for that oral history archive, I wouldn't have known so much because a lot of the bomb disposal records during the the Second World War, quite ironically, were blown up and burnt. So it is an absolutely invaluable archive. No, it's brilliant. And it also, in a strange way, it's sort of oddly modern, as I say. It it encourages these... The interviewers are very good and they, they encourage the people who are talking to talk as openly and as freely and as indiscreetly as they want to. And that's, for a historian, that's gold dust. Now, I want to go through a couple more of the, the characters that you unearth. One of them is Florimund Duke, America's oldest paratrooper and least successful secret agent. Florimund Duke is one of my favourite characters. <laughs> Florimund du Sassois Duke. He was a sort of wealthy American from the East Coast. He'd fought in the First World War, actually. I mean, he was that old. But he was determined to fight in the Second World War. He'd actually been an, uh, an advertising executive for Time Life magazine most of his life. So he'd lived a life of sort of martinis and parties in Manhattan. But he decided he wanted to go to war. And he volunteered for the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA, and was parachuted with two other agents into Hungary, just at the moment when Hitler was pre- preparing to invade Hungary. Now, Hungary was an ally of, of Hitler's at that point, but sh- showing distinct signs that it wanted to move the other way. And so Duke and his team, they were called Mission Sparrow, were parachuted into Hungary and were immediately arrested. They literally, I think they spent about 24 hours before the Germans arrived, invaded, and they were taken off. And they went through a succession of terrible prison camps, really, until they were rescued by a particular Swiss official called Rudolf Denzler, who got them moved to Kolditz. And they were the first Americans in Kolditz. This was quite soon after America, well, not quite soon, but about eight months after America joined the war. And they were seen as kind of very exotic birds of sort of paradise when they came in, because most of these Brits had been in prison since the beginning of the war. 
So, you know, to have Americans arrive was a real sort of uplift for them. But but Duke played a very important part in the sort of end game of Colditz, because by this point, the prison had become really an Anglo prison. It was it was Americans. It was Brits, well, predominantly Brits, Americans, Commonwealth soldiers, New Zealanders, Canadians, Australians and so on. The French, the Poles, the others, the Dutch had all been moved out. But the arrival of the Americans and Duke's presence there really gave a huge lift to the soldiers in Colditz. And Duke became sort of an honorary Englishman. He immediately grew a sort of ridiculous RAF moustache and learned to play bridge and sort of settled in. But he was very key in negotiating the final moments of the Colditz story. Well, read the room, Ben, because I have that same ridiculous moustache. So you've got to be a little bit careful. His was was waxed to points, I can tell you. It looked like... um, (laughs) Honestly, it was about seven inches long. It was hilarious. And he did it as a kind of piece of mockery, really. Oh, wow. There you go. <laughs> that's that's one way to, to make yourself a target within Colditz, I'm sure. The pictures of him are hilarious. They're absolutely wonderful of him in a sort of British flying jacket looking like... Um, he actually looks like a flyer from the First World War. Oh, you'll have to send some over and we'll tweet them out. All right. With pleasure. Now, I want to draw in on, I would say, one for me, one of the most interesting characters within this book. And this is Christopher Clayton Hutton, the British intelligence officer who was brought in, well, I say brought in, but was really kind of the, the spearhead to manufacture the covert escapes. He is, I mean, clutty as he was known, Christopher Clayton Hutton, was one of those people that only war would have found useful employment for because he was he was completely mad, really, Clayton Hutton. I mean, he tried all sorts of things. He tried to be an actor and a journalist and a writer, all of it, and failed. He was an inventor, but, wasn't he? But he became this extraordinary inventor. He was a prodigious inventor of escape kit. And he worked within MI9, which was the branch of British intelligence devoted to prisoners and to aiding sort of resistance operations behind the lines. And he manufactured the most incredible range of things to help, you know, soldiers get out. Hidden maps, compasses, money secreted inside gramophone records, hacksaws hidden in the handles of cricket bats, hairbrushes with secret compartments. He bullied the makers of Monopoly into producing a, a set that actually contained real money rather than just Monopoly money. He was, I mean, he was he was absolutely indefatigable, Clutty. As I say, though, he was completely bonkers and more or less allergic to any sort of military discipline. He did most of his inventing from a kind of underground laboratory that he built in the middle of a field. Um, But he was absolutely extraordinary. And of of all the downed airmen and POWs that got out of out of Germany, it was discovered subsequently that roughly half of them were carrying a map of some sort created by Clutty. And he built them. He put maps on the most extraordinary things on special kind of mulberry rice paper that could be screwed up into an almost invisible ball and then flattened out again and it would keep its shape. He hid compasses inside walnuts. I mean, he did. It, it was the most extraordinary set of stuff, really. But in a way, it's proof that the Colditz prisoners were incredibly resourceful in what they could make inside the castle. You know, they made uniforms, they made passes, they made sort of all sorts of fake stuff. But there was a limit to what they could do. And so because they had a coded letter writing system, they could write back to MI9 saying what they needed. And MI9 could write to them, again, in code, telling them what was coming because there was a parcel system that served Colditz. Again, officers were allowed to receive parcels from So is, is that how they got the resources they needed to make these really important bits of kit that were going to help them escape? Were, there, were their packages not checked? Well, they were checked. They were x-rayed by the chief of security at Colditz. But they had worked a way of getting around that, which was that they had manufactured 
keys that could get them into the parcels office at night. So when a consignment of parcels arrived, they would break in at night, take out what they needed from the parcels, seal them up again. And so by the time they were x-rayed the following day, they'd already had what was useful taken out of them. And these weren't just all small items. They managed to build an entire generator and not one but two radios from materials smuggled into Colditz in this way. That's not even beginning to talk about what Clutty managed to send in. I mean, it's an astonishing story of sort of ingenuity conducted, as I say, from underground in a field in Surrey. You're completely right. Each one of these individual stories could be a book and a film in itself. And it's so great you've been able to bring them together in your next publication. But tell us, overall, how many were able to escape from Colditz? Well, do you know, James, it's one of those stories, a surprisingly small number. Yeah. I mean, it looks like, you know, they were doing it every day. And escape, there were more attempted escapes from Colditz than any other prison camp, for obvious reasons. You know, if you put all the bad boys together, as we said. Initially, the Brits lacked far behind the French in this regard. The French were, and the Poles, actually, and indeed the Dutch were all better at it than the Brits to begin with. I mean, we caught up eventually in the escaping stakes. But actually, the numbers are surprisingly small. Overall, I think there were 35 home runs in all in the whole course of the war from all nations. That's not a huge number when you think of the kind of effort that went into it. And But one has to bear in mind, I mean, getting out of Colditz was extremely hard. But getting out of Germany was even harder because once you got beyond the prison walls, you then had to have disguises and papers and maps and, and you had to know where you were going and you had to speak German. All sorts of things could go radically wrong. So if I, I think I worked it out. For, for every five escapees that got behind the walls, got out, got outside, only one would make it across the border because the border was very distant. It was 700 miles away. So getting out of the prison itself was only the beginning of the battle. So they really did situate this prison to make it as difficult as possible. Not only was it this giant ancient castle, but geographically it was situated so far from the border that it would be one hell of an arduous slog just to get anywhere near that crossing and try and escape to freedom. That's right. I mean, it's right down on the eastern, it's near Leipzig, so it's in eastern Germany. It's actually, oddly enough, it's quite a difficult place to get to still, you know, it's really very, very remote. It's this huge Gothic 700 bedroom castle on a cliff. And it's a long way from anywhere. And the Germans were very good at stopping people from escaping. The minute that anyone was detected as being missing, they signaled something called Operation Mousetrap, which was really every single official for a 50 mile radius was on the lookout for people on the run. And, and that's why so few of them got away. I mean, it's um, it's actually amazing that as many did get away as did. And we did something similar as the Allies. We sent some of the most high-profile prisoners over to North America, so it'd be incredibly difficult to get back to Germany. You had a whole ocean to cross. But also we sent some to the islands that surrounded the UK. Well, it made sense, didn't it? I mean, that you know, you, it, the more isolated you can you can make them, the harder it is it is going to be for them to get away. So, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly had a had a logic to it. And the Germans were, you know, rigorously logical about the whole thing. Every time someone escaped, you know, they would find out how and they would plug the hole. So as time went on, it became harder and harder, you know, to dig a tunnel or scale down the outside on bedsheet ropes or all the different ways that they tried. It, it, you know, it just became more and more tricky. And, and of course, one of the things the Brits and others tried to do was to kind of cover up escapes for as long as possible so that the Germans wouldn't, wouldn't realise that it happened and wouldn't be able to raise the alarm. And so an awful lot of ingenuity went into 
confusing the roll calls, making it look as if there were people there who weren't. And, and the Dutch actually even invented two dummies um, called Max and Moritz, which looked like officers. They were kind of heads on poles, really, but with a greatcoat posed over the top. And there are wonderful photographs of them. And oh, actually, that's at one so point, the head of security in cold, it said, it's very interesting, he said, uh, when the Dutch come on parades, they, they stand still like dummies. Well, little did he know that actually two of them really were. Oh, that that is so incredibly clever. You, you've got to give the Dutch that. Well, Ben, I, I feel like there's so much we could cover, so many stories. It's almost like you've created a, a book about Colditz that is the entire war in miniature, full of these heroes and traitors, class conflicts and rivalry, racism, and, and the full range of human joy and despair but i want to leave people wanting more so tell us what is the title and where can we read the book well the book is called prisoners of the castle cold it's prisoners of the castle and it's available from all good bookshops it's been incredibly fun to come on thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed this conversation thank you for coming on the warfare podcast ben you are always welcome Thanks for listening, but before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War and you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows, like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.